0: On June 6, 1944, Allied forces began a massive amphibious assault on Normandy, France, within the Battle of World War II. Under General Eisenhower's command, troops landed on five beaches and were supported by extensive air and naval operations, where this crucial operation was an all-or-nothing last attempt to take down the Nazis. It used more than 150,000 troops, where 4,500 men died And it all happened in one day. It was an enormous undertaking, an all-out, this-or-nothing assault. And I've been thinking this week about all that it took to pull that thing off. Uh, One of my best friends, late dad, finished his career in Lawton, Oklahoma, as a United States Army Chief Warrant Officer 2. And I didn't know what they did until his passing three years ago, but they, the Chief Warrant Officer 2, they in part bridge the gap between experts' advice and a commander's execution for wartime operations. Pretty cool. They're, in many ways, the brains behind the operation. And this D-Day invasion in 1944 was so massive and so complex of a mission, it required so much extensive planning and coordination, and here are just some of the practicalities. It began more than a year in advance with several other countries. General Eisenhower was appointed to lead it, given the title Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force. mean, I'm only the lead pastor, but that's pretty cool. There were a series of deception operations planned, a creation of fictional armies, and a spreading of false information about landing sites in order to distract the Germans. Years of of intelligence and analysis selected particular sites to the point where ports were expanded, roads were improved, airfields were built, for moving troops, equipment, supplies, for just this one day more than a year in advance. Troops were trained in amphibious and beach landing assault techniques. Large scale rehearsals, how do you keep those quiet, were done to simulate the invasion conditions. Extensive bombing campaigns were done to weaken German air ability and communication networks. And weather had to be perfect to the point that it was postponed one day. Can you imagine the call that someone had to make saying, Let's try tomorrow. But what did all this planning lead up to? All this particular planning, coordination, and dedication, what did it lead up to? The success achieved through sacrifice and death on the beach of Normandy paved the way for the liberation of Western Europe and the assault on a Nazi occupation. Now, the scriptures for my sermon this morning showed the original readers and you today the extent of the gospel of Christ Jesus and the reason that Luke, the author, wants to paint a full picture of the extent of the gospel of Christ Jesus is in part to give you and me intense confidence in what we believe. He doesn't just want us to have faith, though he wants us to have that. He wants us to have confidence in our very faith. You remember last week from chapter 1 where he writes to Theopolis that the goal of this letter was to give Theophilus confidence in his faith. The word that you and I get from asphalt today, you you can imagine driving on the road and now you have an asphalt road and you go, man, I I could drive even more confidently and even faster than before. This is the sure foundation that Luke wants to give his readers, that the person of Jesus is to be the object of your faith, your belief. He's not just to be a symbol, he's not to be a sentiment, but he's to be the very person and object who consumes all of your worship, all of your faith, and all of your hope, And certainty in Christ Jesus is held, is trusted, because His very nature, His very character, His very sacrifice, and His very victorious power over sin was not just an accident, but was something that was planned according to the good counsel of God's perfect will from before all time. These soldiers didn't just show up on a beach. And Jesus didn't just show up and go to a cross and a tomb. And Luke wants to ground you in a sure confidence of that, for he is the one who was sent to save God's people to redeem them. Now, in our passage today, Jesus is shown to have, or Jesus is shown to give particular instruction to people who didn't get it. They didn't get that. They got part of it, but what he'll show is, if you don't have all of it, you don't have any of it. They had an incomplete view of Jesus, which is terrifying because that means they don't know and can't believe in Jesus at all. I hope you come to this passage with a pointed view, that you are aiming to ground your faith in something more deeply than just feelings, or even just a reciting of truths. Friends, what would make you more certain about what you believe is actually right? Jesus actually gives us the answer that he intends for us to have, and it comes in a surprising way and in an amazing way. So my goal in preaching this text to you is to give you confidence in the reality that Christ Jesus is the Savior of God's people, and you can receive that in faith from the Scriptures, because from the Scriptures, they point that Jesus was the goal, the theme, the climax, from the very beginning all the way to the end. Now, I think this text, in part, separates itself, or at least this part of the chapter into three different parts, and the first part is a a beautiful narration of two confused men. So if you would, look up at the text in Luke chapter 4, verse 13. This particular account of Jesus is actually only told in the Gospel of Luke. It's an eyewitness account of the resurrection, another witness of the resurrection. And actually, the, the date of this would have been on the Sunday. The Sunday afternoon, maybe going towards evening, the Sunday afternoon of Easter Sunday. So take yourself all the way to the spring... You know, the palm branches have been waving, everyone's dressed in glorious colors, we come to worship the Lord on the Lord's day, and then we go home, we might have a feast together, and it's at that time that we would find these men walking along a road. Look at verses 13 through 14 of the text. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. So they were making this slow, sorrowful way to Emmaus. It'll say later on that they were sad and doing so, but here are these men where they look over and they see a stranger. Look at verses 15 through 16. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near him and went with him, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they're walking on this road, recounting all the things that they'd seen, and then amazingly, Jesus shows up. It appeared to them. And this is super mysterious. Now think of it. They had, they had seemed to like Jesus, as they'll recount later on, but they still didn't know what he looked like, or at least they didn't recognize what he looked like. They didn't recognize him at all. And this is a common occurrence in the resurrection appearances, appearances of Jesus Christ. You, you combine these four gospels together, and you might understand that man. a lot of people didn't recognize him right after the resurrection. Now, what kept these guys from recognizing Jesus? There's a lot of potential options here, but I think it's clear from the text that Jesus actually keeps himself supernaturally from being seen by them. Mark, after all, another gospel writer, tells us that Jesus appeared in another form to a pair of disciples who were walking into the country. And Luke, just look at verse 16, simply says that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him, implying that there was some sort of divine hindrance or supernatural Disability from them to see who he was. If these disciples couldn't see Jesus, it's because God didn't want them to yet. And so Jesus was traveling incognito. Now, as an aside, though, part of the point, this is a story of delayed recognition, and I think it actually helps you and I know how you and I can see Jesus for ourselves. We cannot see Jesus today with our very eyes, He's in the heavens. And in many ways, this text actually encourages us in that lack of ability to see him physically. Because truly knowing Christ Jesus isn't simply seeing physically Jesus. Seeing Jesus with your eyes won't assure you of your salvation. You might imagine, oh, if I was just there, I would act differently than him. If I was at the cross, I would have said, don't crucify him. Instead, the Bible talks about believing in Jesus by seeing him in the gospel's word. Whether we have ever walked with him on the road to Emmaus, We're called to see him as he's been presented in Revelation for us. Now, some people feel more certain about their faith because they believe they've seen Jesus in a vision. Some people feel less certain about their faith because they've never actually had some out-of-body experience. But according to the Bible, according to Jesus' own presentation, salvation by faith is a gift from God where you're able to know, ascend to, and trust in Christ. For what he's done... And who he is, the redeeming Messiah. So even that is just a a short little blurb of encouragement of this passage. Now, nevertheless, Jesus Jesus joins these men on their journey, and he actually asks them a question. They're going around talking, and he said to them in verse 17, What is the conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? Basically, what are you guys talking about? And their first answer was physical. They were sad. They were downcast, and they were dispirited which I think in part shows their spiritual condition separate from understanding who Christ is. Anyone who's separate from an understanding of who Christ is, is naturally in a state of downcast and sadness and dispiritedness. And I imagine their annoyance at Jesus at this point, who they're just walking along the road talking, and here's that third wheel who shows up and wants to interject. Like Here comes this guy, we don't even know who he is. He interrupts their sorrow And you would imagine their anoints would rise to the top. Like, you seriously don't know what we're talking about? In Jerusalem, where they would have been coming from, Jerusalem was abuzz with the news of Jesus' crucifixion and burial. And and now, with the news of his body, seemed to be gone. Everyone was talking about Jesus. Everyone seemed to have Jesus on their lips, except, ironically, Jesus. Verse 18 is riddled with irony here. And this is how Luke writes. In many ways, he shows the irony of what man is doing versus what God is calling him to do, where he writes and he captures the gospel so well. In truth, Cleopas, one of the main characters here, was the one who did not know what was happening in Jerusalem, for Jesus is no longer there. And he's saying, you don't know what's happening? And Jesus is going, wait, do you not know what is happening? Yet Jesus knew better than anyone what had happened during his Jewish and Roman trials. He, he knew and could testify to what it was like to be mocked and tortured and to die in disgrace. He alone had felt the thorny crowd upon his brow and the nails driven through his hands and feet. He alone could describe the inside of the dark tomb at the first light of the resurrection. Imagine them asking him, do you not know what happened? And imagine the self-restraint that he had to not just blurt out, do you not know what happened? But then look at verse 19. In kindness, Jesus hears their annoyed question, and responds with a question. What things? So first you have this traveling explanation in these first several verses, but then you have their explanation of their unmet expectations. If you're using an outline uh, provided for you on the bulletin. I'm now at point two, where we see that these people will talk about that all of their expectations of this person, Jesus, have now been shown to be unmet by him. The sorrow that these disciples feel is because their view of Christ was unmet. Now, in part, their view is wrong because it's incomplete. Because when the risen Christ, who was a stranger to them, asked them what they were talking about and what things had been happening in Jerusalem, they just poured out their guts. And after Jesus had asked them questions, both the disciples started, these two men, these disciples started talking out all at once in what turns out to be one of the longer speeches in Luke's gospel. Hear what they say to their new traveling companions, starting in, in verse 19. And when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who went with us to the tomb found him as just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. Now Michael Wilcox calls this speech the gospel according to Cleopas. And notice what it includes. There's a lot of theology there. There's a lot of unpacking of the events. There's a lot of unpacking of of the person of Christ, of the life of Christ. Notice what it includes. It includes almost all of the basic facts that one would find in the gospel according to anyone. Yet something still seems to be missing. In fact, one commentator said it it reads like an unfinished creed. Can you tell what's missing? One of the things that our elders have the joy of doing is, is when people start coming to the church and they want to join our church in membership they go through a membership class, and then they're set up with an interview with one of the elders, and in part it's for us to get to know them and vice versa, and so we, we meet them, we talk about them, we let them share their lives, we let them share their testimony, and then we ask, and you, many of you have gone through this, we ask them, okay, if you were to tell someone the gospel in a minute or less, not a big deal, it's not a systematic theology unpacking, but if you were to tell someone the gospel in a minute or less, what would you say? Go for it. And people do really well, in part because we tell them this is about to happen, and you can always tell the people who've been freaking out for more than several weeks because they get really nervous right before any of us in a big competition. They get really nervous, they start talking, and then they almost always seem to leave something out. They profess the gospel to Cleopas. Cleopas started with the life of Christ, his earthly ministry. This man spoke of his humanness, his miraculousness. Now look at verse 20 of chapter 24. At his death. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now rather than blaming the whole thing on the Romans, these guys were right. They actually said that it was the chief priests and the rulers of Israel who had actually set the Christ up to die. And as a result of their sin, Jesus was condemned and then he was crucified. And then they were sad. Because they had hoped that Jesus would redeem his people. These disciples said that they were looking for a redeemer, a savior, someone to capture God's people back. But to them, it didn't happen. They had hoped that Jesus would purchase their salvation by delivering them from the Romans. And all Jesus did for them was die. And then his body went somewhere else. I hope you see the, their confusion and Luke's irony at play. Without pausing for breath, they spoke about the extraordinary things which had happened that very day. Look at verse 21. Three days had passed. This phrase is a signal of the resurrection reminiscent of the prophecy that on the third day, Jesus would rise again. But for the Emmaus disciples, they weren't thinking in terms of a resurrection at all. They thought that Jesus was dead. But some people were saying that Jesus was alive again. But they couldn't find them. Talking to Jesus, they spoke of what the women found and didn't find. And when they went to the empty tomb early in the morning, they found what the angel said about the missing body and what the other disciples saw and didn't see. And they went on to investigate. But note the last words according to Cleopas, verse 24, him, Christ, they did not see. You can imagine their utter confusion. You can imagine the, the prodding of some of our elders, these people coming into membership of Christ died. For sinners, and we're going. Come on, what? What? I can't lead you there. But what else happened? Is he still dead? You basically had all the facts that they needed about the cross and an empty tomb, but no gospel. It was like hearing a punchline without getting the joke at all. I love listening to comedy. I like watching it on Netflix. And there are sometimes where I, I don't get the joke, but other people are laughing, so I laugh. And then later on, I'm like, I didn't get the joke at all. That's what's happening here. They're trying to go through the emotion, but they really don't understand all that is happening here. What is missing? Harshly and sadly, at this point, the reality is that they didn't understand or get the gospel at all, and yet it was staring them right in the face. What they were missing is that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, he was alive in their very presence. Michael Ramsey has said that the gospel without the resurrection is not merely a gospel without its final chapter. It is not a gospel at all. And it's why they were so sad. They didn't get that Christ was alive. Without the resurrection, friend, they could not know that their sins were forgiven through the cross or that the empty tomb was God's guarantee of eternal life. And this is true for you and I today. The confidence that Luke wants us to have is in the reality of the resurrection itself. There is no good news unless Jesus rose from the dead. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you won't believe in Jesus at all. <clears throat> Sometimes there is a fear that Christians have in being weird Christians to maybe outsiders or other friends. You know, you finally invite your friend to church and they come and you just, hope in, you just hope that it's like a normal Sunday. You know, not all the strange songs or there's an accident or maybe even the pastor messes up the Nicene Creed in one part. You just want everyone to kind of go with the flow, right? And friend, you've got to realize, that is not, there there is, the strangest thing about our faith is that the Son of God came, lived perfectly, died as a sacrifice, was buried, and then even more amazingly, was raised from the dead. Like, all of it is astounding to everyone. If you don't have all of it, then you don't have Christ at all. This is why we have such helpful summaries in the Christian faith through creeds like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, where it says in the Nicene Creed, in the third day he rose again. It's a statement of our faith. We will die for that if it's ever taken away from us. And then the Apostles' Creed says, the third day he rose again from the dead. We would die for that too. The gospel is the crucifixion and the resurrection, which equals forgiveness for our sins and everlasting joy in the presence of God. It is only when we see Jesus as our crucified Savior and our risen Lord that we know that he will satisfy every genuine need and every deep longing of our souls. So Jesus, here's what they say. He meets them where they are. He lets them explain all the things that they've seen. And then look at his response in verse 25. O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures The things concerning himself. Now, the word foolish here is obviously an intended rebuke against them. It's it's no gentle way of confronting someone. Oh, foolish ones. These men should have known better. They had all that they needed to know Christ. It's that he was looking right at them that proved their unbelief. It's that they didn't believe that when God said something was going to happen, they didn't believe it would happen. Their gospel was incomplete. Their theology of Jesus was about his great life and what they wanted him to be instead of who Jesus really is, a suffering and rising Messiah. We see that all the time in our day and age, maybe even in your own life, where, where your view of Christ is about his great life and what you want him to be for you rather than recognizing that what he came in his greatness was a suffering servant who was raised from the grave. So this says that he proceeded to preach them the gospel according to the Old Testament. I mean, what would you do in that standpoint? Place yourselves in the shoes. What would you then instruct them with? Someone comes up to you and says, hey, I would love to know about the Christian faith. Hey, I would love to know about Jesus Christ. Hey, I would love to know why you do the things that you do and why you pursue the things that you do and why you live the certain way that you live. I doubt many of us would go actually to the Old Testament. You know, the old thick part of the book. Imagine that, when the word of God incarnate explained the word of God revealed. That's what Jesus did here on this road. This is what Jesus did in his ministry altogether. He preached the truth as it was already revealed. You think of the greatest sermon that people talk about in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard this, but it says this in the Old Testament. Now, there are a couple of facets about Jesus' own sermon here. We, we see that the preaching that Jesus did, it was biblical because he did it from the law and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament altogether. Other parts of the scriptures, it'll talk about the law, the prophets, and the writings or the Psalms, meaning the whole Old Testament. So if someone says, I'm going to preach to you the law and the prophets, you need to know that's about to be a long sermon. That's about to be a lot of books, but it was biblical. His preaching was also thorough. He wanted these men to know everything the prophets And the law had spoken. His preaching was also Christ-centered. He preached all these things and said that it was about himself. His preaching was also not just Christ-centered, but gospel-centered, where it included both the crucifixion and the resurrection, proclaiming the agonies of the cross and the glories of the empty tomb. And his preaching was persuasive, where Jesus argued for the absolute necessity of doing his saving work the way that he had particularly set out to do it. Meaning, whatever you think a Savior should have done, he says that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and then be glorified. Now, you and I don't have the manuscript for this sermon. We'd give anything to have it, right? You and I would love to have this sermon. Was it 35 minutes? Was it 45 minutes? Was it a couple of hours? Is mine going to be that long? It might be. We don't know. But frankly, we don't need to have his manuscripts, his words and his periods and his comments. If we needed to know, God would have given it to us. And frankly, it's not essential that we have the manuscript because we have the actual Old Testament that he preached from. Jesus' sermons were from the Old Testament. And coincidentally, all the New Testament sermons of the apostles were clearly based on the Old Testament writings, which is the way that Jesus had taught them to preach. But for in our case today, Jesus actually gives us an outline. You might go, okay, I don't have a manuscript, but at least give me some boundaries of, of what he was talking about. Jesus gives us an outline of all that he had said. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, and later the law and the prophets and the Psalms, later in this chapter, he gave us a boundary for what he taught, but also he gave us a key for how we're to understand them and read them. And this is how you and I should read the Bible all together. This is how you and I can see Christ for who who he truly is. Unlike these people who couldn't see him for who he truly was, we can see him by his death and resurrection according to the scriptures. So what he preached. He preached the Old Testament. And what's the key in understanding the Old Testament? Recognizing that all of these words are about Christ. All of them. Even the weird parts that you want to ignore. Well, they're about him, so they're not weird. They're lovely. Friend, every part of the Old Testament finds its meaning and purpose in relationship to the person and the work of Christ Jesus. The scripture says that it is only in Jesus that all things hold together, and this is true of the Old Testament as well. We cannot fully and properly understand anything from Moses to Malachi unless we see its connection to the whole gospel, meaning a cross in an empty tomb. Now, here goes a couple of ways that you and I can read the Old Testament scriptures through the lens of Christ. So buckle up. What do the scriptures say about the sufferings of Christ? Christians, you should know this. And if you don't know this, you're lazy or you haven't read it. But if you claim to know Christ, then know what he says about himself. Remember Genesis, friend. Genesis 3:15 where the seed of the woman, a man of flesh and blood will be bruised by the devil before crushing the devil's head. Who's that talking about? Remember Exodus chapter 12 verse 13 where the Lord says the people of God are to be carried from death through the offering of a Passover lamb. Who's that pointing to? Remember Leviticus, chapter 16, verse 14, where the word says that atonement will be made only through the offering of a sacrificial blood. Who's that about? Remember Numbers, chapter 21, verse 9, where the word is lifted up as a sign of a bronze serpent, and everyone who sees it is delivered from death. Who's that pointing to? Remember Deuteronomy, chapter 27, where cursed, covenant-breaking sinners may find grace at God's blood-sprinkled altar. Who's that showing? And that's just the first five. All these truths find their fulfillment in the saving work of Christ Jesus, where he is the son of a woman who was bruised on the cross before crushing Satan's head, where he is the lamb who offered his blood for our sins and was lifted up for our salvation, where he is the covenant maker who was cursed for all our covenant breaking and who sprinkled his redeeming blood on the altar of the cross. And friends, That's just the beginning of the Old Testament where people wanted to debate things like creation, a flood, a tower, a lot of laws. But all those things are to drive you not in confusion, but to truth of the one man for whom forgiveness of your sins can be held. But remember the prophets, because Jesus wouldn't be done yet. Where in Isaiah, the word says that a Savior would be wounded for our iniquities and our sins, pierced for our crimes, our transgressions. Remember Jeremiah, the word says that the Savior will be mocked and abused. Or Zechariah, where the word says that a Savior will be made as an atonement for the whole land in a single day. And these are just some of the prophets. You can do all these with all of them, but what do these prophecies do within these prophets? They find their fulfillment in what? They find their fulfillment in whom the sufferings and death of which Christ Jesus had come, who was wounded, pierced, abused as an offering, an atonement, sacrifice for sins. And this is only part of what he had shown him. That's just the death part. Remember, their confusion was not knowing the resurrection. Remember Psalm 22, where the word says that he will die a God-forsaken death, a dry and thirsty death surrounded by enemies who his pierced hands and feet would then gamble for his clothes. But within that, remember Abraham's who believed that God would raise his son from the dead. Remember how Hebrews chapter 11 would interpret that for us. Or remember Jonah's sign, a man who spent three days in the belly of darkness. And remember how Christ interpreted that in the book of Matthew. Remember Daniel's vision, where a son of man rose to the clouds of heaven and coming in glory. Remember Psalm 16 where the Holy One is not abandoned to the grave, but joyfully enters into the presence of God. And remember, Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm within the New Testament, where he reigns in glory at the right hand of God. Friends, this is how Jesus viewed the Old Testament. It was an all-rushing effect of their hearts forward towards him. And this is called, for you and I, hermeneutics. The way in which you read the Bible, the way in which Jesus reads the Bible, was that it was all about him from beginning to end. Our passages said that he interpreted these things to them. When in reality, what he was doing was showing them a hermeneutic of how they can understand the scriptures so that they can look at him and recognize him. He's the Ark of the Covenant and the blood on the mercy seat. He's the light on the golden lampstand and the bread of life. He's the prophet who preaches like Moses, the priest who prays like Aaron, the king after David's own heart. And I pray that you read and hear the scriptures like this. I pray that you apply the scriptures through repentance and faith like Christ would have you according to his own word. And if you follow his hermeneutics, his way of interpretation, his understanding of who he is, you'll long for Christ within the redemption of Boaz. You'll long for Christ within the selfless sacrifice of Samson. You'll long for Christ within the kingship of Josiah. You'll long for Christ within the miracles of Elijah. These types These signs, these figures are to engulf you, your heart, to the very one who shows himself to you according to the scriptures. Run far away from the preachers and teachers who downplay what Christ uses to draw men to himself. And I think it is fascinating here, amazing here, and encouraging to you and I today. Those who may not know Christ... He didn't point these men to the scars on his hands. He didn't point them to the hole in his feet or the scars on his brow or the lashes on his back. He didn't ask them to smell his oil anointed body. What did he give men who needed certainty in their faith? What is he giving you this day to have certainty in your faith? who needed to be awakened to the gospel of God, who needed forgiveness from their sins, what did he do? He preached. He preached to them the very words of God. And all of this did was point right back to himself. On April 28, 1945, a commander of a prison and his officers left a prison, handed over the keys, just abandoned it at night. And the reason was, the next morning, the 45th Thunderbird Division, the 42nd Rainbow Division, the 20th Armored Division, were advancing toward Munich with Dachau concentration camp directly in their path. At 10.15 a.m., orders were given to liberate the Dachau camp where the American forces approached the death camp just minutes later. One prisoner at Dachau was a Turkish journalist. He later wrote of the whole ordeal. He said, the Americans were not simply advancing toward us, They were running. They were flying, mounting their weapons on captured trucks, using tractors, bicycles, carts, trailers, anything with wheels to come. The 2nd Battalion, the 222nd Regiment, the 42nd Division was coming, he said, brazenly, boldly down the highway with their commander in their lead. These soldiers were going after those in danger by specific, calculated, and willing to use necessary force to liberate. Described from another view, a man named Lieutenant Colonel Walter Fellainz wrote several hundred yards within the main gate, we encountered a concentration concentration enclosure itself. There before us, behind an electrically charged fence, stood a mass of cheering, half-mad men, women, and children, waving and shouting with happiness their liberators had come. Our own hearts wept as we saw their tears fall down their faces, because it was clear that they understood what was happening. They had read of it. They had heard murmurs of it. And now they see it face to face. Friends, I hope you understand what you gaze at, what you consume, what you study, what you seek to understand from the pages of Scripture. It is not a messy arrangement of things. It is a coherent, logical, beautiful domination of liberation, of redemption, where the Scriptures are about Christ coming for His people to capture them, to save them. Storming Normandy or taking over a concentration camp by sacrifice in order to deliver people from tyrannical bondage to new life took immense calculation, planning, and tenacity. And in our text, a long-awaited Messiah came for his people to save them from their sins by submitting to the will of the Father's perfection, by giving an actual, whole, perfect life over as a substitutionary sacrifice. Where on the third day, it was in the same sacrifice that he was raised from the dead, showing not only the conquering of the dead, not just the promise of the death's conquering on your behalf, but also to showcase the glory of God where all this is done, and it was done, what we say, according to the scriptures. With that, friend, your faith can have all the certainty you can fathom. Because it was Christ who came. Christ who died, Christ who was raised, according to the scriptures. Let's pray.